Hey. Hello. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Gil Casimiro. I'm Jess DeBakey. And we're here to give you a closer look into the business of behavioral health by speaking to the people making it happen. This week, Kyle Talcott, founder and CEO of Uplift. Kyle Talcott is the co-founder and CEO of Uplift, which is a mental health startup that offers therapy and psychiatry virtually. The difference about Uplift and the reason I'm excited to have Kyle on the show today is they've got an innovative model that uses technology to bring together a member's therapists, a member's psychiatrists, and also the rest of a member's care team into a single model of collaborative care that's really behavioral health first. They've launched less than a year ago, but have since expanded to multiple states and signed deals with some of the big guys. They've got Optum and Cigna and Anthem and, and so on. Um, and as for Kyle himself, he's spent his career working in healthcare. I had the pleasure of working together with him at CityBlock Health, where he launched one of the first ever value-based virtual programs in Medicaid. He has scaled up clinical ops at Clover Health, and he was the first employee at um, a habit change startup that ended up being acquired by UHC, which is pretty cool stuff. Kyle, great to have you with us. I'd love to. I'd love to kick off by 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 hearing more about Uplift. What's the What's the problem you're solving, and and how are you approaching it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, not surprisingly, you know, health, a lot of problems in healthcare are multi sided. As much as we'd like to be able to solve one problem for one customer, healthcare has a lot of different stakeholders. And so for us, the journey really started with solving the problem that individual and practitioners in behavioral health space have with participating in insurance networks. And so we sought out to really build out the key sort of technology platforms, as well as the tech enabled services, such that an individual working in an office trying to build their private practice has the ability and capability to accept insurance for payments. And so we set out to do that. We've been able to do that quite at scale, which has allowed us to really enable access to a part of the consumer and patient base that to date hasn't really been able to afford high quality behavioral health care. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself focused on this, the capacity side allowed us to then solve for the patient side and bring those two together in a really unique experience. And not surprisingly, you know, insurance is a big piece of this so that we can reduce the amount of out-of-pocket costs for patients, ultimately making it much more affordable and accessible. And if we can make it affordable, then people have the opportunity to really engage within their healthcare and the journey that it requires to really see the outcomes that, Mm -hmm. you know, payers want to see, as well as all of us. Yeah. Was there a moment or a realization that you had that kind of the the solution you're building is is the right one? Were there other variations you were considering? Yeah, it's it's really been a culmination of experiences. You know, I've worked on the payer side, the self-insured side, commercial, Medicare, Medicaid, primary care side at CityBlock. Um, and access to behavioral health was always a challenge. It was always one of the major barriers to achieving the organizational goals, the clinical outcome goals. And I think actually our work at CityBlock was sort of the aha moment in some ways where, you know, really saw the impact of integrating behavioral health upfront within the clinical treatment plan and the 
impact that that had on medical spend. And so when looking at the behavioral health space, you know, what I really saw was an opportunity to build something that was incredibly engaging and accessible on the patient side, beginning with psychotherapy, but ultimately being able to build out a deeper set of clinical capabilities so that we're not just serving the lower acuity or healthy-ish part of the population, but also the part of the population that has avoidable medical spend, excess ER visits, excess hospitalizations. And so very quickly, we added on psychiatry into our model and enabled a team-based care team model within sort of the platform. And so now a therapist, as they're engaging with their patient, can schedule and work directly hand-in-hand with an uplift psychiatrist for their patients. And so I think that both from a, you know, to your point, supporting them from the billing perspective and actually the, the basics of accepting insurance to also supporting them from the clinical side has been something that we've seen really exciting, both from the practitioner side of the world, but also the payers who ultimately are paying for these services and want to make sure that as access improves, which is a huge first step for the, for the overall industry, that we're also guiding people to the right level of care and accessibility to those who really need the care the most. And so that's been a huge next step for us. And I think that piggybacks off of really the insights, seeing the impact of high quality integrated behavioral health medical spend. And ultimately, that's what payers need to see for ROI perspective. It's really exciting just as a kind of mental health, um, like fanatic a little bit, and like somebody who's really passionate about this space to hear about an innovation that's solving kind of the problem of mental health service and access being such a luxury. I think it used to feel like the whole topic of mental health and behavioral health was so stigmatized. And now that is fading away as time goes on and work is put into that, but it becomes, okay, there's not as much of a stigma around it. Maybe we as a culture can talk about it more and there are a ton of solutions out there, but now the problem is actually getting people to that care and making it affordable for the people who need it most. So I'm energized to hear about what you're doing. Thank you. It was, and, and as are we, and, you know, to, to go to your, your question, you know, I think some of the advantages of our model versus, for example, like a straight brick and mortar or a straight virtual provider is meeting patients where they are at scale. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have. Behavioral health, the, the problems that we're all facing are so massive that even building five clinics in an area doesn't even make a dent. And so how can you, from a capital perspective, from a time perspective, scale clinical capacity in a way that truly moves the needle and do that in a way that also allows you to meet patients where they are. And so our hybrid network, I think, is a really good example of that, where, you know, we've built up thousands of hours of weekly capacity in under a year, all operating off of the same clinical platform. And, you know, we've been able to do that with, you know, relatively a little bit of capital thus far. I really like what you're saying about the about the link between therapists and psychiatrists. I was reading somewhere that you basically are able to warm transfer patient from, from a therapist seeing them to a psychiatrist, make sure that that referral actually happens or at least increase the likelihood of it happening and then have all the data of both the therapy and the psychiatry in the single system, if I understood that correctly. 
I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And then also something that you alluded to, which is the, the MD side of the house. Like what, when we think about medical cost, medical spend, medical outcomes, where does that part come in? How does it tie, even if a member has, you know, medical needs that are not BH related, but are exacerbated by having a behavioral condition? How do you think about that? Yeah. So on the, the first piece, you know, we, when we first set up psychiatry and sort of a, a, you know, very closed beta to test that integration, you know, we, we thought it was really important for a, the therapist to be able to triage and for us to be able to step care into the higher level that in some ways allows us to make sure that we're getting people to the right level of care in the methodical way. And in order to do so, you know, we really wanted to make it super easy for the therapists. And it's, it's wild how low the bar is. You know, you think about referrals today in healthcare, and most of them don't actually get fulfilled. Patients don't show up. And so, you know, within a telehealth visit or directly, you know, if it's in person from the patient, patient profile, the the therapist is able to see the psychiatrists that are in network available and licensed within the state that that patient is from. And so right then and there, as they're talking to the patient about why it's important, why this referral is needed, they're able to schedule it. And so far, we've seen over 90% of those visits actually get completed, incredible stickiness and retention. And ultimately, that's what we want to see, right? We want to see people engage with their health and give the clinicians the time to actually lead them towards the outcomes and quality of life improvements that everyone wants to see. How does that compare, do you think, to brick and mortar or, or other providers? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in some ways, you know, we, we've talked to a lot of large group therapy practices within our local markets, and a lot of them have incredible challenge finding an in-network psychiatrist who has availability. And if they do have availability, you know, it can be months out. And so if you think about how that affects the patient actually getting to that psychiatrist mm. and then sticking with that psychiatrist, you know, you can, you can understand why it rarely happens. Now, there are some practices that have both, right, which is great, which is best in class. That's what we want to see. But there are far and few in between. And the mm. number of patients overall that they can serve is, is, is fairly small, right? And so even within the local market, that begins to really not drive the change or the impact that we need to see broadly. And I think that that number of patients keeps growing, right? As, as mental health access becomes, you know, more and more available because also exacerbated by the pandemic, I think a lot of people turn to seeking that help finally, and, and maybe are sticking with it. Do you feel like there's going to continue to be that growth in terms of patients wanting this type of care? Or have you seen that slow at all since things have kind of leveled out after the pandemic? I'm wondering what the impact of that has been and if we can kind of project out from it. Yeah. So we actually do see a lot of patients getting behavioral health for the first time. And so I do think that in a lot of ways, COVID was sort of the tipping point and forced consumers, providers, payers, the entire healthcare system to really recognize this as a problem that wasn't going away, that has been building for some time and is really a forcing function to, to, to make changes. And so we've seen a lot of patients coming to us. This is their first time getting therapy or psychiatry. We also see, you know, I think is, is somewhat symptomatic of 
the healthcare system prior to this, which is, you know, we're seeing close to 40% of our patients, new patients coming through on a psychiatric medication. And yet only less than half of those actually have a psychiatrist. And so what you're seeing is primary care has filled the gap for way too long. And so, you know, going back to the stakeholder and multi-sided problem that behavioral health care, like a lot of other things in healthcare is, you know, we're also, you know, talking with primary care physicians and to your earlier point, Gil, around medical spend, how can we actually engage with primary care in a way that allows us to fully integrate into the healthcare system and facilitate the navigation of behavioral health from primary care into behavioral health and vice versa. And that's a, you know, sort of an area we're continuing to focus on. And we're excited to announce some things here in the coming months around some new partnerships, which I think, you know, is a lot of ways a macro trend of primary care doing more and more, taking on more risk. They're becoming the payers in a lot of ways. And so not only have they burnt out from the impact of mental health and their, their patient panels, but also seeing the medical spend associated with the lack of adequate treatment for those patients. And so some really exciting things, I think that, you know, paint a bright picture for the healthcare system overall, but we still have a very long ways to go, right? Like it is, you know, we still don't have, I would say, adequate diagnosis and screening within the healthcare system, let alone. Mm. Yeah. Something I'm also wondering about is uh, when I think about the industry, I think there are a couple of um, companies that are maybe in a similar zone. I'm thinking of like the Almas or the Headways. And then there are also the kind of like traditional, traditional sort of traditional, like virtual behavioral health providers, traditional in the sense that they are just focused on virtual behavioral health, but they're obviously pretty recent players like the Liras and the Moderns and the Springs. How do you, where do you see Uplift kind of fitting in or how is it different from what's, what's out there right now? Yeah, there's been a lot of really exciting activity within behavioral health. Obviously, a lot of venture dollars flowing in, which has created a lot of new companies, frankly, a lot of noise as well, which is hard for consumers, payers and other stakeholders, right? You know, I think the, the marketplaces that you mentioned are an incredible first step to really broadening access across behavioral health. What I saw with a lot of those is a lack of integration, both within the local healthcare system, as well as you know, the lack of integration across clinical capabilities, right? And so a lot of those, you can find a therapist, some of them, that's all you can find. Others, you can find a psychiatrist, but you're not going to find them working as a team. And so the patient is still stuck trying to figure out, well, do I need to see a psychiatrist? Do I need to see a psych psychiatric nurse practitioner or a psychologist, an LZSW? What's the right provider for me. And, you know, they often are probably going to choose both ultimately if they do need a medication. And then there's still a lack of communication between that. And so it's, it's helping stitch together individual or disparate points within the behavioral health system, mm -hmm. um, but not really stitching it together. And that enables, I would say, comprehensive care, right? And with that, really, I think the accessibility, you know, a lot of them are also only in network with the large nationals not a lot in Medicare. And so, you know, for us, we've been really focused on building depth within fewer markets and really trying to build ourselves and integrate deeply within the local healthcare system. I think that's another thing that I learned from, from City Block. Uh, you know, our motto is, you know, healthcare is local. And I do believe that. 
And so finding those local partnerships, finding even the smaller health plans and making sure that we have adequate coverage within the market. I think the other thing that you know, there is going to be a little bit of a challenge in the future is that you know, they've worked to build massive directories of clinicians. And yet, you know, it's a lot of what health plans and some of the carve-outs did early on. And, and what we've seen even from patients coming over from some of those competitors is that they're shadow networks. And so you've got a lot of lack of engagement within the provider base. They're practicing on their own EMRs or paper or scheduling systems. And so it's a great first step, but really lacks, I would say, the sort of end-to-end solution that we're really focused on building in fewer markets, which is the trade-off there, right? Right. I think your other category is sort of more on the employer side. And you know, again, from a first step towards accessibility, I think they were all a really incredible movement. And, and if you think about the migration of behavioral health and how these solutions have started, you know, the employer market was really the first to react. They're generally faster to, to contract and, and move than payers are. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the payers, you know, service, the, even the self-insured, either an ASO or, you know, fully insured health plan products. And now these employers are paying out of their HR budgets or other budgets for their employees to get access to behavioral health. Well, they're also paying the health plans for the same access those networks largely inadequate, right? And so mm-hmm. what we saw was, you know, major pressure on the health plans to improve their networks, starting with those same large group employers, which has led to better reimbursement rates, which has led to better contracting opportunities, and I think has really snowballed to where we are today. But the challenge with employer is that you're getting a couple sessions, maybe, which is great, but, you know, if you're going through a certain, you know, sort of episode or, you know, a relationship or something that is more sort of period focused. Although, you know, what happens after that, you know, you're stuck either paying out of pocket or finding another therapist or psychiatrist who is then accepting your insurance and you still have the same problems. Similarly, you know, I don't know what the latest stats are, but people stay in their jobs two to three years. And so you have a lot of churn there and movement. And so once you leave your employer, now you're left starting over again as well. So you're, that's really interesting. So you're saying like you, you Uplift is focused on creating depth of, of network in specific uh, geographies um, with the model that where you have kind of a behavioral health team almost, we have a therapist working in conjunction with a psychiatrist. And so you build a provider network and then you go to health plans and you say, hey, we have this approach that we believe is better and more effective and has better outcomes. And we have a high density of network in the areas that you care about. Um, give us favorable terms and we'll give you access to the network or a favorable pricing. And we'll give you access to the network um, that you know has shown or is showing better outcomes and kind of solves the health plans access challenges. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah. You know, I think health plans are still... I would say they, they're talking about outcomes and quality, but access is still their number one mm. problem. I don't, you know, I think that will change more rapidly than we've seen in other specialties because the amount of venture dollars and companies that are starting and in, in the movement there, I think they, you know, when it comes to quality and outcomes, you know, I, I think that there are, it's still in the early days. 
you know, I think there are a lot of opportunities. And one of the challenges challenges within behavioral health is that the medical spend that is typically impacted is not related to behavioral health. And so it's the, you know, co-occurring or comorbidities, diabetes and hypertension and CHF, and you see reduction in the hospitalizations and total cost of care related to those conditions because you solved behavioral health yeah. and because you address behavioral health. And, and that's where it's hard to tie that back to. Correct. It's hard, behavioral health specifically. hard to attribute specifically. And so attribution becomes a problem. And so what we've seen is the payers, you know, they, they want to see more and more measurement based outcomes. And so, for example, when a patient comes in to uplift, we bring them through a digital intake. And so we're collecting, collecting the history assessing, you know, their psychiatric history, medications, et cetera, as well as bringing them through their baseline assessments, which is going to give us a gauge on where they are from the symptom perspective, where their history is, that then is delivered to the provider and, you know, used for context ahead of that first intake encounter. We're then doing periodic automated assessments to follow up to understand trajectory. And that, again, is facilitated and sent back to the provider so they can understand and contextualize their treatment plan, their treatment progress with what the patient is feeling and seeing. And so I think that is a really important piece and the first step of what we want to do. And ultimately partnering with the individuals who are treating the other aspects, the physical health sides, you know, to deliver whole care, I think is where we can start to really participate in value-based care and, and sort of the other opportunities from a payment perspective that allows us to shine and really show the impact that behavioral health treatment has on the broader total cost of care. Mm. You mentioned access. Um, I, I feel like access is what everybody's talking about. I agree. Everyone is philosophically committed to outcomes and, you know, ROI, but it does feel like the talk of the town is access with whether you're talking to health plans or enterprises or even individuals, what do you think the long-term solution is to access given it seems like the reality is there's just a shortage of therapists and psychiatrists in the U S today. Yeah. So actually, you know, what's interesting is, you know, when you really look into it, if you think the shortages on the psychiatry side are absolutely hundred percent true, I actually challenge a little bit the shortage on the psychotherapy side you know, there's close to six, 700,000 therapists out there. When you actually look beyond psychologists, LCSWs, LPCs, LMFTs, you know, when we look at the challenges that I think have to us to this point from an access perspective, it's actually fragmentation. You know, there are much more capacity constraints, obviously, when you think about a patient panel of a therapist versus like a PCP. Um, because of the duration, you know, you're spending an hour with the patient, mm. you know, versus right. eight minutes, right? But there's two to three times as many behavioral health practitioners as there are PCPs. And so in, in not everyone needs a behavioral health practitioner necessarily, although one could argue that having a primary mental health care practitioner, yep. that would be a great preventive measure and, and something that we embrace wholeheartedly. And so for us, bringing them all together and enabling them to, to sort of maximize the amount of patients that they can see 
And the amount of consumers that can afford to see them was really that first step to enabling access. And I, I think that fragmentation problem is first and foremost, and a little bit more unique in behavioral health than a lot of the other industries that have already been rolled up in by private equity in the past or in primary care, you know, less than half are actually operating as individual practitioners these days. And so behavioral health is just really far behind what has already happened in a lot of other specialties. Are there, are there new models that allow to scale care that you're excited about, whether it's, you know, collaborative care, the collaborative care model, or, you know, using psych NPs, anything out there that you think is particularly promising? Yeah. So we're big fans of collaborative care and, you know, something that as we look at primary care partnerships, something that we're certainly pursuing and exploring as a way to, you know, make sure that as we're integrating with primary care, there's good alignment, there's good screening and good facilitation of data sharing. Ultimately, the outcomes that, you know, both PCPs as well as we want to drive. I think, you know, when we look at unique opportunities that I think our Uplift model has is enabling is the partnership between therapists and mm-hmm. psychiatrists. And so when you think about Pierce, going back to your prior comment, supply constraint, psychi- psychiatrists, even when you add in psychiatric nurse practitioners are incredibly, incredibly supply constrained. They're just flat out and not enough of them, right? But there's a considerable amount of therapists that are engaging with patients oftentimes on a weekly basis. And so typically your psychiatrists, you're going to see them, maybe you see them once a month as you're starting your medication, maybe it's once a quarter. And by then you're probably dropping off and just going back for your refills. The ability to actually leverage those weekly encounters with the therapist as a feedback loop to the psychiatrist allows them to start to take action much more frequently and start to extend the amount of patients that they can see. So if you're not having to bring somebody back because of side effects, you're actually relying on the therapist and working as a team to understand what's happening. That allows the psychiatrist to make faster decisions, shorter visits, and see more patients. So you're starting to stretch the supply side and the psychiatry side because you're actually working with the therapist and really leveraging that Mm. uh, patient encounter. You called out fragmentation as like one of the main challenges to access in behavioral health. And then you've also talked a lot about partnership, whether it's partnership between therapists and psychiatrists and other members of the care team, or also partnership between like Uplift and other startups, for example, or other companies, health plans, things like that. I'm wondering, that's seeming like a theme and kind of like maybe solution to the fragmentation is partnership and working across industry and across uh, kind of like healthcare teams and levels. Can you talk more about that? And maybe is there something else that's missing from that equation in solving the problem of fragmentation? Or do you think that's the main solution? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you can bring the health practitioners together, as we've done, we will continue to do, you know, I think bringing disparate specialties together within healthcare is still a huge problem. Right? We made a lot of progress from systems and interoperability, but the reality is most people are using the same EMR as they were before. And a cloud-based you know, EMR is in some cases not even really a cloud-based EMR. Well, you know, they're, they're u- unique instances. And so I think there's still a lot of room to go when it comes to true interoperability and bridging 
the clinical data and coordination layer between different specialties. And that's why I think collaborative care is really interesting because it somewhat forces that through the payment model, which ultimately, it, you know, in healthcare, you follow the dollars, you can find, you know, people solving new problems, right? And I do think that there is a lack of, you know, overall incentives across the system, right? Even collaborative care is not embraced by a lot of Medicaid states, you know, it's increasingly so within commercial plans, but is, you know, is fairly new, even from an adoption perspective across Medicare, Medicare Advantage, even though it's been there, right? And so I think that, you know, for as, as we look at how the healthcare system is transitioning to value-based care, primary care physicians, I think, are going to be, again, put in the, the, the seat to probably prompt the most integration here. And that's because they're participating more and more in risk. And I think that, you know, there is more and more literature and data, I think, that has, you know, sort of proving what Gil and I saw firsthand at CityBlock, that behavioral health really does make an impact. And so I think that in and of itself, once you have alignment of the payment incentives with the clinical need and treatment, you typically have broad-based adoption. As sort of pessimistic as it is about our healthcare system, I think that is where a lot of things are driven. And, and ultimately, that's where innovation you know, becomes sort of small scale to large, large adoption. Yeah, it, it feels like uh, behavioral health is maybe for the first time really a priority in the White House. And I wonder when we think about changes that need to happen on a national scale, is there anything that you feel is a really important, should be a, an important priority federally or maybe even for individual states when it comes to healthcare legislation and regulation? Yeah, it's. But, you know, a little known fact that Medicare, for example, only allows psychologists and LCSWs as billable ther therapist types. And so if you're an LPC or LMFT, you cannot bill or participate in Medicare, which is wild because there's hundreds of thousands of clinicians that commercial payers, Medicaid, you know, are seeing as just as good as anybody else. They're master level clinicians, licensed. And yet Medicare is, has been slow to react. And they're finally have proposed language going back to, you know, White House priorities. They've actually proposed that to now allow that. And, and so we'll see if it makes it fully in. I would expect that it does, but let's get out of our own way you know, when it comes to, you know, constraining supply. And I think that that is a huge step in the right direction, assuming that that actually becomes permanent. I think, you know, it wasn't until COVID and the pandemic that, you know, CMS allowed the home to be an origination site for telehealth. Yeah. Like that's just wild to me, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, continuing to see progress there will be really important. You know, Medicare is increasingly larger and larger piece of healthcare and will be for the foreseeable future. And I think that is one area to really start. It's also an area where there's incredible amount of excess spend because your patients on average are just much more complex, right? Similarly with Medicaid, I think, you know, that's an area where, you know, it's state by state and so much harder to enact broad-based changes. You know, I think it's up to close to half the states, you know, even reimbursing for collaborative care today, you know, that needs to continue to, to, to expand. And I think, you know, right now, a lot of the focus is around really high cost conditions like substance abuse, which is an incredible, incredible problem that needs to be solved. 
you know, certainly would like to see larger initiatives focused around behavioral health more broadly. And, you know, I think that's an area where, you know, they're sort of working around the edges and to see something a little bit more holistic would be a huge, huge talent to the rest of the, you know, rest of the market. Yeah. 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 We talked about, that makes total sense. I mean, uh, improving reimbursement models, super important, right? Like making sure we can bill for collaborative care in a variety of scenarios that people who are qualified to provide care are actually able to bill for that care, regardless of the population, super important. We also talked about how the collaborative or partnership model between psychiatrist and therapist helps solve the psychiatrist access issue. It's really acute today. So, you know, those are, those are some changes. I'm curious if you look ahead five years, let's say, how do you think the behavioral health space will look different from it is from how it is today? Um, I think one of the biggest changes that is, you know, is, is ongoing. And I would say full speed ahead is I would say the carving in behavioral health into the health plan. You know, it's, it is, it continues to surprise me, although it shouldn't, that when I talk to somebody at a health plan who has carved out behavioral health and I ask them about things they're doing or about their medical spend or challenges, they have no visibility. And that is just, you know, to me, you know, we're 2022 sitting here and, you know, a, you know, a CMO or senior medical director has no idea what these things are doing uh, and the impact on their organization and their patients. That, that is a trend that needs, frankly needs to accelerate, in my opinion, and I think will over time solve because of, I think, the realization and the acknowledgement that behavioral health is part of full care, right? You can't just carve it out and call it a day, especially a lot of those are incapitated models where you're trying to constrain the amount of behavioral health utilization. I always think of it like a water balloon. You squeeze one side and the other side mm-hmm. gets bigger, right? And so that's what we've been seeing. And, you know, I think, you know, those that are continuing to insource, that will enable a whole new set of stakeholders and customers and people that need solutions. And so a big part of the market will continue to to open up and expand there. It'll take a little bit of time. I also see telehealth and behavioral health commoditizing, similar to what we saw in the physical space you know, teledoc became in and they're, you know, being, being able to access a practitioner for a cold or whatever it is, that is a complete commodity these days. Now, navigation and things coming out of that, you know, there's still a huge amount of opportunity and ways to integrate that and things to build off, of, which is one of the reasons you see teledoc acquiring these companies, trying to basically reverse integrate into more holistic models. I think behavioral health, not quite there yet. But, you know, the hope is that if you need to talk to somebody, you can, and you can do it very quickly and cost effectively. And that would be a huge first step. I don't know if that takes one year or five years. Ultimately, you know, I think behavioral health follows a trend, much like any other of the specialties where you go from access to quality and then, you know, continue to move towards alternate payment models that better align the incentives around healthcare delivery and services rendered. Maybe one more question for you that is a little bit more philosophical. I'm curious, what, what do you think is the role? So, you know, Uplift is, is, is pretty new, but it's also part of a wave of new startups that 
have launched as sort of a response to the growing need for behavioral health solutions that, uh, that COVID spurred. What do you think is the role of startups in the future of behavioral health? Which, which parts of the industry might they disrupt and which parts do you think they shouldn't or won't? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I think there's, there's a lot of folks that have come into healthcare time and, you know, lack of humility and appreciation, quite frankly, for the responsibility that we have as operators within this space. You know, in the end, whether you're building a technology solution or you're building a fully integrated medical medical practice, you have a responsibility to the patient and the care that's being delivered, right? And so, you know, I overall incredibly bullish on this space. And I think that the amount of money that came into the market, I think anytime you see that, there's going to be mistakes made. Unfortunately, patients are the ones that, you know, are, are stuck at the end, right? And, and facing the downstream impacts of that. You know, I think if people can build responsibly within the space, just like any other space within healthcare, then, you know, startups have a huge role. There's, you know, there's not going to be local practices that continue to solve this problem nationally. It's going to take all of us. Startups themselves aren't going to solve it either. And so I think partnering with those that have been there, that have been building within the space, that have been running and operating and treating patients, those are all incredibly important. And, you know, I, I think money can drive ego and a lot of other things, right? And, and force people to believe things that, you know, maybe they shouldn't, or maybe they should take a step back and, you know, listen. And so I think philosophically, startups have a huge, huge opportunity to impact every aspect of behavioral health from payments and how things are paid, even working with health insurance companies, you know, broadly, and whether they're agnostic to specialty or behavioral health specific, you know, I think there's huge, huge opportunities. Uh, you know, ultimately, there's national and, and frankly, global crisis around this. And there's not going to be one company, there's not going to be 10 companies that, you know, sort of solve the problem, right? You know, you're mm -hmm. talking about trillions of dollars overall. And behavioral health, as we've talked about, is integrated into every aspect of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, point solutions, you know, are, are a challenge and will over time need to be integrated. And, you know, it's going to be, I think, on on operators and founders and, and investors as well, who sit on the boards of these companies to make sure that care is being delivered responsibly. And even if you're shutting down a market, making sure there's a transition plan, making sure there is continuity of care. All these things are incredibly important and just they're, they're common in a local practice, right? But I think startups can forget that there's patients at the end of this, that they're responsible for that. And they should do everything they can, even if that means, you know, losing a few extra dollars to do so, because it's ultimately the right move for the individual. And, and frankly, that's the right move for the company in the medium and long term. Yeah. In other words, there, there isn't really a part of the behavioral health space that's cordoned off or that startups shouldn't touch. But it's just that as people start companies and try to tackle issues, it's about having a really high bar for quality for member impact and kind of playing nice in the sandbox with people who have been doing it for a long time and probably have insight and experience to learn and making sure that startups kind of 
don't let high valuations um, skew their perception of themselves and kind of what they're able to do. Yeah, it's it's always a challenge because ultimately, you know, startup by its nature is a journey and you're building a company and, and, you know, sometimes you have to make hard decisions today to ensure that, you know, you can be here in three years to serve thousands or hundreds of thousands yeah. of patients, right? And so it's always a trade-off between business and, and mission. And that's always one of the toughest challenges. But ultimately, patient care is patient care. And whether it's one or 100,000, same decision has to be made. And so, you know, figure out other ways to work around the natural sort of constraints of a business to ensure that that is solved for. So if that's the only thing you solve for in the end of the day, then at least you've done the right thing. And you've taken care of those that, you know, have come to you for help, right? Yeah. And your yeah. team can stand by that. The therapists and psychiatrists that are on board with you or whoever else it is on the in the kind of clinical world can feel good about that. It's kind of like it has impacts not only on patients, obviously, but on the whole culture and like collaboration that you've built around a startup so that each of those people can feel like they did the right thing, which is probably the reason that they came there in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, I haven't talked about it here a lot, but clinicians, you know, burnout across specialties, right, across the entire system is incredibly high. And, you know, that tension, you know, between sort of bad business decisions and, you know, or, or good business decisions that are bad for, for care, you know, intensify that incredibly. And whether that's at a hospital system or a startup, you know, clinicians are the one often facing the patient. And they're the ones communicating or stuck in the middle. And it's it's a terrible position to be in. Kyle, good luck. You're doing some really important and impactful work at Uplift. So really hope that you're able to kind of make your make your bring your vision to life in the way you have already been doing. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your insight and your thoughts. And it's just been so nice to reconnect also personally. Uh, and and to hear what you've been up to professionally. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and been a lot, a lot of fun to chat. Thanks for listening. We've got new episodes coming out every other Tuesday, so stay tuned wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn if you're interested in chatting more or even being on the show. See you next time.